If you have your Bibles this morning, if you open to uh, Titus chapter 1. A little tiny book tucked away there in our New Testament. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far, so you know to turn back there. You're going to get a little taste of this book today, and we'll be spending more time on it uh, in the weeks to come. We're going to spend about eight or nine weeks together uh, in this book of Titus. And like Miss Janet here, uh, Paul was one, the Apostle Paul was one who was uh, familiar with uncharted territories. He traveled far and wide, especially uh, for his day, a day before trains and buses, a day when, when most journeys were done on foot. If you were lucky, you might have uh, an animal to ride on, perhaps a cart. But for most of his journeys, they were done on foot from place to place, from town to town. And the Apostle Paul had this desire and, and really the command of God to take the gospel where it had not yet been heard. To take the good news about Jesus to places where he had not been preached just yet. And the Apostle Paul writes here to this young man named Titus, who was one of the people that he mentored in the faith, one of the ones that he discipled and raised up in his faith in Christ. And as we look at just this introduction today, and we're not going to spend a long time with this, but as we look at this introduction today, I hope you'll get a feel for this letter. Really what you've got in front of you in these three chapters is Titus is given by the Apostle Paul what I would call a blueprint for the church. He's laying out for Titus, this is what the church is supposed to look like. You see, Titus was given the mission here on this little island of Crete there in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. He was given the mission of completing the work that the Apostle Paul had been doing there. Now we know from history that the Apostle Paul was not the first one to bring the gospel to the island of Crete. It was already there by the time he arrived. And we think that it probably came there through the day of Pentecost. We read earlier in our services today from Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached, and it says that over 3,000 came to faith in Christ on that one, after that one sermon. And it says in the crowd that day were some Cretans. That's people from Crete. Now, when we hear the term Cretans, and it kind of has a bad connotation. There's a reason for that. You'll find out uh, here in chapter 1 later as we uh, get into this next week. But... He, they, we, it says that there were some Cretans in attendance that day at Pentecost. And so historically we believe that the gospel began as the Cretans that were there at Pentecost in Jerusalem when Peter was preaching came to faith and they took the message with them back to their island there in Crete. And many years later Paul showed up and began to teach them how to be the church. But for some reason we know that he was called away. Perhaps he was pushed out because of persecution in the area, or perhaps he was called away by some other duties. But he left this young man named Titus to complete the work that he had begun. With those things in mind, would you stand with me in honor of God's word this morning? So we share these first five verses together. Keep in mind what we have here is a letter from Paul to Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness 
in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You can be seated. Father, I simply pray that as we begin to scratch the surface of this wonderful little book, that you would begin to give us insight into what it truly means for us to be your church and into what you've called us to do as a result of that reality. In Jesus' name. Let's look at the key players here this morning. The first one, if you want to follow along on your outline on the back of the bulletin there, there's plenty of blanks to fill in today. First one is the Apostle Paul. This man who wrote at least half of our New Testament in terms of the number of books. He was a very bold man. I consider Paul to be what we would know as a, a type A personality. He was bold in his witness and that often got him in trouble uh, Paul was kicked out of just about as many towns as he went to because people didn't like the way that he shared this good news about Jesus. People would reject that message, and Paul was often forced to leave prematurely. Let's look at some of the things about the Apostle Paul. I've given you a couple of ABCs there, uh, some things about the Apostle Paul for us to understand who he was. First of all, he identifies himself here as an apostle of Jesus. Now, that's a technical term there. The, the term apostle is used two different ways in the New Testament. At times, and most of the time, you'll see it used as a title, a technical term, like it's used here. But there are places in the New Testament where it simply refers to those who were sent out with the gospel. That's what the, the term apostle means, those who were sent out. That's literally what that word apostle means. They were sent out with the gospel and primarily, Acts chapter 1 describes these as, as those, those 11 men who had walked with Jesus. They were 12 at one time, but then Judas betrayed the Lord, and they had to replace him with Matthias. And in, in Acts chapter 1, it defines the apostles as those men who had walked with Jesus during his ministry. They had seen his miracles. They had heard his teachings. They had walked with him during those three years of his ministry. And they had experienced for themselves his death, his burial, and most importantly, his resurrection. These men were eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and they were given the commission by the Lord, the great commission, to go out into all the world and to proclaim the gospel, to teach all that he had commanded them, to baptize people in his name, to reach the nations with the message of Jesus Christ, a commission that we are still seeking to complete today as the church. The Apostle Paul here, an apostle of Jesus, sent out by the command of God. And Paul says of himself that he was an apostle, though one strangely born. That's the way he talks about himself. He was not one who walked with Jesus during his ministry. But as Paul was going to, to Damascus as a Pharisee, seeking to persecute these followers of Jesus Christ, 
as he was going to be a persecutor of these Christians. On the road to Damascus, an amazingly bright light from heaven shone, and he was blinded, and he heard the voice of the Lord saying, Saul, Saul, that was his, that was his Hebrew name that he had before he became known as Paul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus. A voice from heaven said, I am Jesus. In that moment, I believe the apostle Paul's life was changed. And consequently, the Lord gave him this commission to go to places where the gospel had not been proclaimed and to share particularly with the Gentiles, those non-Jewish peoples, the message of salvation in Jesus. Secondly, here he says of himself that he was a bondservant of God. Now, in most of your translations there, you're going to see the term servant or even possibly the term slave. The Greek term there is the word doulos, which means a bondservant, and it implies someone who entered into servitude because they owed a great debt. Now, the Bible does not in and of itself commend the institution of slavery, it simply recognizes that the Roman world in which Paul lived was built on the backs of slaves. The Bible even says in various places that if a slave could gain their freedom, they should do so. But the Bible wasn't interested in changing the cultural norms as much as it was interested in changing the hearts of people. You see, that's really how a cultural change takes place. It begins as people's hearts are changed and then it spreads from there. It's an important thing we'll talk about more before we finish today. But Paul uses this word here, this doulos, this bondservant, to depict himself as one for whom a great debt had been paid. He understood that he was a sinner in great need of a Savior and that his sin debt was far beyond what he could pay on his own. And that a great Savior named Jesus had gone to the cross in his place. And now Paul considered himself a servant of God because of what Jesus did at the cross. And so we see him here, this bond servant of God. But the C on your outline is he was also a communicator of the gospel. There in verse 3 he says, And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching of with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. He was sent out to communicate this gospel, that there is salvation in no other name. There's only one name given under heaven by which we might be saved, and His name is Jesus. He is the one who lived perfectly for 30 plus years on this earth, and then He went and took the place of sinners on an old rugged cross so that all who would place their faith in Him might be saved. And Paul went from place to place, from town to town, from village to village, proclaiming this good news that there is a Savior for all people, regardless of nationality, regardless of skin color, regardless of socioeconomic class, there is a Savior for all people, and His name is Jesus. And He called people to trust in Christ. A communicator of the gospel. And let's, let's see in these opening verses, in these first three verses, Paul sums up the message of the gospel. And we could easily miss it. Oftentimes we read through these introductions really quickly and we miss some really good stuff. And I want to pick this apart just for a few minutes this morning and show you the gospel that the Apostle Paul communicated as he went from place to place. He gives it to Titus in these first three verses. This is the gospel in a nutshell. First, in verse 1 there, it begins with faith 
in Christ. This is where he always began. As he would proclaim the good news of Jesus, the call was always for people to come to faith in him, to place their trust firmly and fully in Jesus. And many did, but also many rejected him. And there's a word here in this first verse that it would be very tempting for me to gloss over, but I'm going to talk about it just for a moment. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. There's a lot of folks that really don't like the terminology of what we know here as, as election. Let me make it real simple for us. You see Paul using this term in a variety of places in, the, in his letter to the Corinthians, and primarily in his letter to the Romans, verses eight, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans begin to lay out this grand idea that just as God in the Old Testament chose for himself a people known as Israel, so in the New Testament days, in the days in which we live, the days of the church, God is calling into himself, choosing for himself, electing, as the word says, a people for himself. Now I know, I know that as I say that, we quickly, quickly run to the extreme that so many do and go, well, if God has chosen some people, then that must automatically mean that he's not chosen others. And we love to run to that extreme. But as you look at what the Bible says about this doctrine of election and how God has chosen a people for himself, the Bible is much more focused on the fact that there are people who have been chosen if you have been rescued by the grace of God in Jesus Christ this morning would you not so quickly run to the other end of the spectrum and say well if God chose some he must have rejected others would you just simply revel in joy in the fact that God has chosen a people for himself and if you are a follower of Jesus Christ you are among that number simply by his grace alone the bible is so clear that we are saved by grace through faith it's not of works it's not because you were better looking it's not because you were smarter it's not because you figured out the gospel on your own in fact the bible says there are none who sought after god no not one none of us would know him if he hadn't drawn us to himself and so before we run to the negative part of election, let us understand clearly the great joy of being the chosen people of God, that he loved you enough that he would choose you for himself. I'm going to leave you for today with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes in the faith. He talked about this doctrine, and he says of Jesus, he saves man by grace. And if men perish, they perish justly by their own fault. He's weighing out there that, that balance between God's sovereignty and His grace in, in rescuing people from sin and death and, and, the, and the side of that we are also fully and completely responsible for our actions. It's a conflict that needs to be held in great tension. He goes on to say, How, says someone, do you reconcile these two things, these two doctrines? I love what he says, My dearest brethren, I never reconcile two friends. Never. These two doctrines are friends with one another, for they are both in God's word, and I shall not attempt to reconcile them. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you this morning, if Charles Spurgeon would not try to reconcile them, neither shall I. I'll simply just say to you this morning, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've been redeemed of your sins, 
Would you find it in your heart this morning to give praise to the God who rescued you by His grace alone? That's the beauty of the gospel. Faith in Christ doesn't end there, though. Faith in Christ leads to a knowledge of truth. Look what he says there. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Now we live in a culture that wants to flip-flop those two things. That has this idea that if I can just gain enough knowledge, if I can just learn enough about this book, or if I can get all my questions answered, if I can know why it is that God allows such horrible things to happen to people that seem to be so good, and why He allows the wicked to prosper, if I can understand how it is that God created the world, and how I can reconcile that with all the modern-day ideas of evolution, if I can, if I can determine things like how does, how does my responsibility and, and my freedom as, as a human being created in the image of God, how do I reconcile that with the sovereignty of God and His control over all things? If I can come to a knowledge of the truth, then I'll put my faith in Him. Here's the problem, folks. If that's the way you would come, you will never enter in. Because the gospel doesn't work that way. The gospel begins with faith. Faith in Christ, which leads to a knowledge of the truth. If you say, I won't come to him until I get all my questions answered, then let me warn you, you will never come. I still have many questions about this book, many things that I don't understand, even some things that I struggle to believe. The struggle is not the problem. The problem is when we allow the struggle to keep us from the Savior. Faith in Christ leads to knowledge of the truth. Paul would go on to preach to these churches that the knowledge of the truth produces growth in godliness. Here is where so much of American Christianity falls short of biblical Christianity. That it begins with this inward transformation, the seed of faith planted in the heart of a person, which begins to produce a knowledge of the truth as we grow in our understanding of the Word of God. But it does not end there. It is meant to produce a growth in godliness, an outward manifestation of an inward reality. Just as Yoshi pictured for us that in baptism this morning, which is an outward manifestation of an inward faith, so should be true in all of our lives. I've said this before, if you claim to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have been walking with Him for five years, you should look more like Jesus today than you did five years ago. If you've been walking with Jesus for ten years, you should look more like Jesus today than you did five years ago, and a whole lot more than you did ten years ago. There should be a progression, a growth in godliness, a growth in Christ-likeness, and so much of that is missing in our churches today. We've given folks the idea, well, just trust in Jesus and live however you want to. That's not biblical Christianity, folks. The Bible calls us to give all of our lives to this Lord and Savior. We want, so many of us seem to want Him as a Savior, but to reject Him as Lord. And the Bible makes no room for that kind of half-hearted faith. This growth in godliness is not in there. The growth in godliness is what gives us the hope of eternal life. 
so many in our Americanized Christian culture struggle with assurance of faith. How do I know that I'm really saved? And Paul tells us right here and many other places in his writings, you know that you're really saved because of the fruit that's produced in your life, the effects that faith has in your living. He talks to the Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit. That because of Christ's work in you, you will become more loving. You will become more peaceful. You will become more patient. You will find more joy in your life. You will gain more self-control. Why? Because you're working really hard at it? No. Because He's working in you. That inward faith becoming an outward transformation. And as we begin to see the fruit of Christ's work in us, we gain the hope of eternal life. How do I know that I'm saved? The same way that I know wind swept through my yard yesterday. Because there's leaves everywhere. I may not see the wind, but I certainly see its effects. Donnie and I probably got a few tree branches to clean up as a result as well. That's how you know that what you have in Christ is real is because you begin to see Him transforming you from the inside out. And if you don't see that transformation, let me challenge you today. Make sure that you've met the Christ who transforms. This hope of eternal life, I wish we had time to spend here on this one, is all based in God's eternal promise. Look at what He says here. In the end of verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Church, let us be reminded today that the gospel of Jesus Christ was not plan B in the mind of God. It wasn't as if Adam took of the fruit that day and caught God by surprise and God went, What did you do? You messed everything up. Now I've got to go and figure out how I'm going to fix this mess. Adam did mess everything up, by the way. But God was not surprised. Before the ages began, before time began, God already had in his mind exactly how he was going to rescue the people who would reject him. The cross was not plan B in the mind of God. It was the only plan and still is. For the sake of time today, we're going to finish here with this last verse. I know you've got blanks that aren't filled in. You'll just have to wrestle with that all week long, I guess. I want to leave you with this verse today. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. Paul was writing to another church that was really messed up. The, the two most messed up churches in the New Testament days were, number one, the church at Corinth. Sadly, we've taken, I, I, I so want to go back to whoever named this church and ask them, had you even read the New Testament? I mean, really, you could not pick a worse namesake. I mean, they might as well have called us the Judas Church or something like that. It, it's just, it's the worst, the Jezebel Church would have been better. It's just the worst namesake for any church. They were the worst. But the second worst is the one he's writing to here, the church at Crete. Both of these churches, Titus was sent into. We'll talk more about Titus next week. We'll kind of pick up where we left off. But he writes this to the church at Corinth. 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, or that could be translated through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. He goes on to talk about in this chapter the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of this world and how if you really look at the plan of God from strictly human worldly eyes it looks pretty foolish it looks really weak and you wonder why god of all the things that you could have done why did you choose the church that's really what titus is going to teach us over the next eight weeks why the church what is the church meant to be and then as a result what is the church supposed to do? And I want to tell you this, it's a whole lot more than a Sunday morning worship gathering. When our world thinks about the church, they think about what we're doing right now. But as you're going to find as we walk through this book, there's a whole lot more to the picture. But as the world looks at the church today, they see only foolishness. As they look at what we're doing this morning and preaching the gospel. That just seems ridiculous. Like that's really going to help anybody? Some guy 2,000 years ago named Jesus who lived in Judea and got executed by the Romans. How's that going to help anybody? It seems like foolishness to the world, but to those who believe it is the very power of God. And it's what we're meant to be all about. And so while we're going to leave this kind of half done today, I'm challenging you to come back next week and the weeks ahead. Let's look at what it really means. Let's see the blueprint of the church, who we were called to be. Not just in the New Testament days, I believe Paul was laying out a blueprint for every church of every age and every culture. And then as a result of who we were called to be, what we were meant to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning, and then we're going to kind of sing our way out today. I'm going to invite Emily to come and share this last song with us. So we think about the marvelousness of God's plan, foolishness to the world, the wisdom of God, weakness to the world, the power of God. Father, we are your people chosen completely and purely by your grace not many of us are wise not many of us are strong not many of us are wealthy not not many of us are anything in the eyes of this world we we don't have the political clout we we don't have the economic resources but we have the power of god in the person of jesus christ we have this good news of the gospel. The message that's meant to change the world and has already in so many ways. And yet, as we heard today, there are still millions who have yet to hear of this great Savior. You've given us a task that is far beyond us so that your power could be seen through your church. You chose the things 
that we're not to demonstrate who you are. And for that, we are so thankful. And Lord, as we sing of this gospel, as we prepare to exit this morning, we pray that you would remind us of how wonderful, how marvelous, how glorious you are and who you've called us to be as your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing this together. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the
As we prepare to go out today, just two quick things. First of all, if you are uh, new with us today, we would love just again to have just a few quick moments with you before you head off to lunch. Uh, guest reception room 101 as you go out these double doors, and you'll sit right there on your left. And secondly, tonight we have a very special opportunity that we want to invite all of you to. Uh, tonight at 5 o'clock, we're going to have a special uh, Belizean meal prepared by Pastor Ruben and Isela and their crew back here that's been working uh, during the service this morning. I want to encourage you to come back tonight at 5. You can skip lunch at Miguel's today. This will be so much better than what you're going to get there. And so come back tonight at 5, and we're going to eat together, we're going to feast together, and then we're going to hear uh, from Pastor Reuben about what's going on in Orange Walk these days uh, and the other churches there in Belize. And we encourage you to come back for that tonight at 5. We'll have you out the door and headed home by 6.30, uh, but we really want you to be here uh, for that if at all possible. And so, Pastor Reuben, would you come and pray for us as we close our services today? He's going to be sharing more with us tonight. Um, and I want you to come, brother, and, and pray for us as we, as we go out this morning. Father God, we thank you for this beautiful time together that we had, Lord God. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for all what you have done in our hearts, Lord God. We pray, Lord God, as we go out, Lord God, that we can be your witness outside there and be just open to hear from you so that we can share your love, Lord God. We thank you. We know that you have prepared us this morning to be a witness for you outside there, Father. Thank you, Father, and I just bless this church and, and also all of uh, that have come here for the first time, Lord God, that this word has been just uh, the word for all of us, Father God. We thank you, and I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Hope to see you at 5 o'clock tonight.